Hello, and welcome to Square in a Circle. On this episode, we're going to talk PPBE and the budget, and I'm joined with Major General Retired John Ferrari, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work focuses on the defense budget, defense reform, acquisition, and the U.S. military. He is concurrently the chief financial officer at Complex, a data analytics and cybersecurity firm. Over his 32 years in the U.S. Army, Major General Ferrari, who is now retired, served as the Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation, the Commanding General of the White Sands Missile Range, a Deputy Commander for Programs at the NATO Training Mission in Afghanistan, among many other assignments over his career. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and of my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. Government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and any other organizations. The content is for education and information purposes only. All right. Hey, again, uh, again, sir, you know, thanks for participating in, in the podcast, Square in the Circle, uh, you know, this grassroots initiative for the force management community. Uh, you know, I appreciate your time, especially, you know, over this this holiday weekend. And uh, I'm really thrilled, excited to talk to you about PPBE and in the budget with you. And we'll talk a little bit about innovation. We'll talk about the threats as outlined in the uh, NDS um, and, and changes in the character of war. Um, and so the so what for these topics, the reason why they're important um, is that, you know, force managers are, are heavily involved in this process, you know, whether in the planning phase with designing, building the force or, you know, in the programming phase and trying to formulate the, you know, the budget, you know, the PPBE and the, and the budget are part of how the army runs and, and force managers need to know how the army runs. And so before we dive in, sir, you know, I'll transition, give you the floor for any opening comments. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. And this is a very important subject, and I commend you for, for really digging into it and trying to teach people. Uh, I like to tell everybody that before you can fight an army, you have to organize, train, and equip it. Uh, there is no army that goes into battle to fight on behalf of its nations and its citizens that isn't force managed. And it's a skill that, unfortunately, is has been lost over time. Uh, our Army's renaissance out of the 1970s disaster was led by force managers. Uh, and over time, that skill has kind of atrophied. And it's great to see young officers uh, really in the mid-grades, uh, like yourself and others, really taking this to heart uh, because our future depends upon the, the, the ability to organize, train, and equip. Okay, awesome, sir. Uh, so we'll dive into the budget, PPBE. The, the questions will be kind of intermixed in, be, in between, sir. So the budget approaching a trillion dollars, really approaching 900 billion. Um, you know, we have certain factions, people that feel like our, our the, the DOD budget is way too big. Um, so I'm just curious to know your thoughts, sir. Um, is it too big? Is it too small? How do you, you know, what's your response to the, the factions that think that, you know, our, our budget is way too big, sir? Yeah, so let me tell you, right, so it all depends upon how you measure and what you're measuring. So if you look historically speaking, uh, the defense budget is a percent of the gross domestic product, right? If you go back in history, it's been as high as 12, 13 percent during wartime uh, and down about five or six percent. Now it's down to two and a half percent. So when you think about the defense spending and what you spend on national security as a percent of the economy as a whole, we are not at an all-time low, but near an all-time low. So that would tell you that we're probably not spending enough. Now, for those who say, hey, a trillion dollars, 900 billion is a lot of money, that's absolutely correct. 
uh, and we need to look at how we spend the money because, right, that's what gives the taxpayers the confidence, right, that they're going to provide the money and that it's going to be well spent and not wasted. So, so, so it's both not enough uh, and in some cases more than enough. We've got to spend it wisely in order to justify more spending. Yes, sir. Um, so we're on round two of a continuing resolution. Um, so I was just wondering, sir, what are the implications of a continuing resolution? Like, why is a CR bad? Why is it, why is it not a good thing? Yeah, so it's bad on a number of levels. The first, it's very wasteful in spending because you, you only can spend a little bit of money at a time. So what the Department of Defense winds up doing, it's like instead of going to Costco to buy uh, you know, your, your groceries and you get volume discounts, you, you're buying shopping at 7-Eleven. So you're paying a premium to, to buy in small chunks. Uh, the other thing is because of the way the appropriations process is set up, there are these things called new starts. You have to ask mother, may I? So in order to buy additional number of tanks or additional number of munitions or bullets, or even to start a new military construction project, you have to have a new appropriations bill. So right now, none of the military construction projects planned in, in this year, this fiscal year, are able to start because, right, there's no appropriation. Uh, the additional spending that's needed on munitions is not able to start because of that. And so, so it holds up all of that. You're wasting time and money and, uh, and really delaying the ability to get combat capability of the soldiers under the continuing resolutions. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Um, sequestration. Uh, I came in, well, I commissioned as an officer right around the time of sequestration. Uh, I was just wondering, sir, if you could talk us through what that is, what that did to the army, and do you foresee a, another round? Do you think, you know, time's a flat circle. We're going to go back, we'll go back to that, sir. Yeah, so time time does go in circles, and so uh, so I remember sequestration very well because I had just come back from the Pentagon uh, and had to help the army get through that, and it's it's very very painful because instead of an orderly drawdown, uh, it's a it's like a chainsaw to spending, and so you stop spending maybe not in areas you want to, but in areas you can. So the army stopped training effectively, it canceled CTC rotations, it stopped buying munitions. Uh, and those are things that can't, once you lose uh, the production line time or you lose the training time, it can never, ever be made up again. And so those types of cuts where it's just sudden, uh, which could come into effect, like you, you said, here in a couple of months under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was the debt ceiling deal, uh, where defense budget's going to be cut by a couple of percent if the, if the appropriations aren't in place, are very, very damaging because at that point, uh, the, a lot of the money's been spent, some of the money's inflexible, and so then you stop doing those things that are actually the most important to you, which is training uh, and buying kind of small items. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Um, so talking about uh, moving on to unfunded priority lists, and so, you know, bylaw services um, and in combatant commands uh, have to submit this uh, unfunded, basically, you know, a wish list to, to Congress. Um, do you think, do you think it's a good thing, sir? Do you think there's, um, does, does it hinder any like civ mill relations between, you know, the, the executive branch and, and the services, sir? So the first thing to remember, if we take a step back from those unfunded priority lists is the constitution of the United States, which guides everything we do and what we swear allegiance to, 
divides the roles of national security into two pieces. The president of the United States and the executive branch fights the military. He is the commander in chief. The Congress under the Constitution has the power to raise and maintain the military. Uh, so all spending, all weapon systems, all of that stuff has to go through the Congress. So in many respects, there's an information asymmetry between the executive branch, which puts the budget together and controls the services, and, uh, and, and the Congress, right, which is appropriating the money. So Congress asks for once a year, it says, hey, as we're doing these budget deals, can you please tell me what, what, what didn't make it? What is it the executive branch told us that you didn't need? And so it, it is not a hindrance. It's not about civil relations between the, the executive branch and the military leaders. What really it is about is the relationship between the Congress and the Department of Defense, which has a constitutional role that other cabinet departments do not have. Gotcha. That's very, yeah. That's that's very interesting, sir. Yeah, I've read a couple articles, um, not recently, but you know, over time, where um, they've been talking about how it is, you know, it's a hindrance to you know civil relations, and and I, if I remember correctly, I think maybe Secretary of Defense Gates wasn't uh, a big fan of the unfunded priority list, and was looking to try to um, get rid of it or or try to minimize minimize it. So in the history of the Department of Defense, there has never been a Secretary of Defense that's been in favor of it, right? Because if you're the Secretary of Defense, you make your recommendation to Congress, and you want Congress to implement your recommendations. So the fact that they can reach into your department and say, hey, what, what else is out there, right, doesn't mean it's not constitutional, right? I mean, it's, it is how our system of government is set up. And now, the Constitution doesn't say that the Secretary of Defense has to like it, right? So the Secretary of Defense doesn't like the fact that the Congress has to appropriate money and do authorizations, and they, they can't do what they want, right? So all of that is, is part of the checks and balances uh, built into the Constitution, that natural friction between the people represented by the legislator, legislative branch and then the executive branch. And so it is very healthy that we have it. Uh, it prevents the Secretary of Defense from, from kind of hiding the playing cards from the Congress, from doing their constitutional role. And so it brings a bit of transparency. And if the Secretary of Defense is confident in their decision-making and believes that it's, it's in the good interest, then the Congress will, will approve it. And even with those lists, we're only talking on the small margins, right? One or two or three percent. So 97% of what's put forward is relatively uncontroversial. It's in that 2 or 3% sometimes that, that it gets a little tricky. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Uh, sir, transitioning to the, the PPBE system, um, I was wondering, sir, if you could talk, talk me through about, you know, why do we have PPBE? Do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's a, it's a bad thing, sir? Yeah, so I think it is a thing, right? So good or bad depends upon who you're talking to and when. And if you didn't have the PPB, I'm convinced you would reinvent something very, very similar to it. And when you, if you break it down, if you go back to the constitutional role that the Congress has the power to appropriate all money and to raise an army and maintain a navy, right? That's the Constitution. And that's the, really the, the B in PPBE and the E, right? So the PPBE is you have to execute the money in the year that it's being spent after Congress appropriates it. B is the budget. That budget is what the president sends to the Congress. So before the president sends it to the Congress, he's got to do the programming. So that's just the programming, that first P, 
or the, the second P really is how does the department get ready to submit the budget to the Hill? And then you have planning, right? Before you decide what you want to spend in the department, you should plan for it. So if you think of it logically, okay, let's think about what we want to do. Let's see if we have the money that we need, that we have to do. Let's go to the Congress and ask them for the money and the authority to do what we want to do. And then let's go spend it, right? So one could argue, well, what's wrong with that, right? That seems like a pretty good system, right? Think about it, figure out, resource it, go ask for permission for the money and then go do it. Where it gets into a problem is in really where people have the most problem with PPBE is in the acquisition part of it. And, and the reason for that is that in the way Congress appropriates the money and it micro appropriates it down to like sometimes tens of thousands of dollars in the RDT and E accounts. And so if you, you, you can't shift money from like a tank to a Bradley line, right? But if, you're, if you've got your O&M accounts, which are in broad buckets and the tank unit needs more money instead of the Bradley unit, you just move the money around and, and they, they train. Uh, so the problem really is on the acquisition side and the research development where the money is so finely divided up that there really is no flexibility in the system. And we all know that with technology changing the way it is, uh, taking two or three years to figure out where every $10,000 goes into an acquisition account uh, makes the system uh, very slow and sclerotic. And, and so... That's, that's the major criticism of PPBE comes from its inability to respond rapidly in the acquisition world. And that's really because the Congress wants it that way. Uh, and it goes all the way back to the 60s where the services in the 50s would start acquisition programs without the permission of Congress and then dare the Congress to cancel it once the jobs were created. So the Congress has said, well, I'll show you. And right, you have to at every step along the way, come and ask me, mother, may I, uh, to move an acquisition program forward. And so that's what creates the valley of death for small companies. It's what makes it very difficult for the department to react when you need different things. You need to buy different things. If you need to buy artillery shells or 5556 five, five, munition, Right. You know, the, the challenge is you better have known it two years ago because you can't use the rifle munition to buy artillery munition. Yes, sir. I was going to I was going to wait on this one, but uh, it was brought up, sir. I was, mm -hmm. Can you just give me a little bit more on, on what is the valley of death? Like, what, is, what does that mean, sir? So that means if you so if you're one of the big defense contractors and you come up with a new thing, a new widget, a new technology and you go to the army and you go, hey, look, we've been working on this new technology, this new fuse that goes on an artillery shell, and it's really good. And the Army goes, yes, I want to buy it. By the time it goes through the PPB cycle, right, so right now today, it's what, uh, November 2023, right? So you, you, the earliest you could get money for it is, you know, in, in 2020, fiscal year 25, right? So it's a year from now, a year plus. Normally, it's about a two-year, that valley of death is about two years it's somewhere between one and three years, depending upon when it is. So on average, about two years. So if you're a big defense company, you can wait two years for that money to come. But if you're a startup or a small business, you can't wait because you have to meet payroll. And so that's that valley of death where you invent something, the Department of Defense really wants it, 
and then can't buy it for two years. And so that's when most companies, right, that's, they can't do business with the department because nobody's going to loan them money to bridge that gap. There's no guarantee that Congress is going to give them the money or that, that it'll wind up in the budget. And so it just becomes too risky. And so that is the valley of death. It's like, how do you close that? Because the department can't just go, great, I'm going to buy it this year. Well, that's a new start, right? And, and then you have the CR, going back to the CR. So even if two years ago you had gotten your money in to have this thing bought in this year's budget, well, you should have gotten the money on one October. Well, now it's November and, right, it'll be February. So you're sitting around waiting. Your employees want to be paid. Your rent's got to be paid. You need to go buy the material to do the stuff. And so that's where the system really falls apart. And that's what the valley of death is. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of concerns about the system. It's 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 not perfect. I mean, I think at FY22, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, they created the the commission on the PPBE reform. Um, I th- I think they have a interim report or or mid year report, um, and and they should have a finalized report. I, th- I think by by next year, if I remember correctly. Um, in in describe PPBE, there's a there's a quote that uh. That I, that I saw um, in one of my readings a, a way back. It was like PPBE is like 1960s system. It's like the closest thing to Soviet-style centralized planning, <laughs> you know, but it, and it's, it was designed to mitigate, you know, duplication in, in the services. Um, but with, with PPBE, sir, where, where, where do you, where, where do you see success? Like where, where you know, where, where do you see like the, the, the best, the best thing about PPE, sir? So again, uh, the success, if done right, of thinking about what you want to do and then allocating money for it, right? So for example, back in the 2014 timeframe when Russia invaded Crimea, right, the army strategists said, and, and, and Arctic at that time said, hey, wow, we have no more combat for, you know, we have no logistics in Europe, we have no artillery, we have no command and control, Europe is a lily pad to deploy everywhere else, we actually couldn't fight in Europe. Uh, And they did a bunch of studies, and they showed what was needed in a land war in Europe based in, you know, really the Ukraine scenario, because it was based off of Crimea and Russia's invasion. And so the department, right, and I was the programmer at the time, Right. We said, well, OK, this is what we want to do. So how do we turn that into a, a five or six year plan that builds pre-positioned stocks that that ramps up air defense and command and controls and fires and puts all those things back in Europe? And so we worked it through the system and it took right. It wasn't overnight. And then we had to go over to the Congress. Right. And convince them to start appropriating money for that. And then Army Material Command had a, and, and U.S. Army Europe had to execute those plans to get it over. So that's a success where it took, you know, three to five years to really alter the Army's footprint in Europe that had been going down ever since, you know, 1990. And so that's a huge success story, right? The, the counter to that, though, again, is like if it needs to move quickly, so you need more artillery shells today, the system is not set up to do that. And it's not the PPBE is not set up to do that. It's the congressional appropriations process is not set up to do that. Right now you can go in and ask for supplementals and, and right and, and they are, right? But but that all takes time and, and takes a full act of Congress to do and the president and those those all take time and you see those emergency supplementals 
coming in, starting to authorize more of, more of that. But if you look at the Navy and, and right, the challenge it has with its nuclear submarine force and the industrial base is just in really, really bad shape. There's $3 billion in the emergency supplemental for Ukraine and Israel for the industrial base, and it's just sitting there. So every day goes by, the industrial base is not getting healthier. Uh, so, so a lot of the problems, again, with PPBE are tied to the way that Congress manages the appropriations process. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think with with Crimea 2014, Crimea, the, the Russian, you know, fait accompli and the, the annexation, it's like 2014 Crimea, Russia is, you know, to our MDO and, and our modernization efforts, like going back in time of the, you know, 1970s with Yom Kippur War and, and Airland Battle and the, the Big Five. So like, you know, time is a, you know, is a, is a flat circle. Um, for PPBE in, in Congress, sir, I, you know, I think, you know, one of the issues, right, is probably, is probably trust, right, between Congress and, and, and the Pentagon. Um, do you think Congress should give DOD more flexibility? Or, you know, do you think the, the Pentagon should, you know, open the books per se and, and, you know, allow Congress to be able to, you know, view what's, you know, what's happening um, in, you know, programming and, and the budgeting? Your thoughts? Are- yeah, so that's like one of the greatest questions, right, that, that you could ask because you hit the nail right square on the head. And, and the challenge is the lack of trust between the legislative branch and the executive branch. And trust, as you know, in any unit, right, uh, from what you've learned from being a lieutenant on up is a two-way street, right? You need to have, you need, right, both, both sides have to trust the other and both sides have to give. So the Congress says, hey, I don't trust you because I give you this money and then it all gets misspent or you do do something other than what you said you were going to do with it. And the department says, hey, I don't want to share with you any of these details unless I have to because then you're going to take it and go, right, go out to the press and go do things about it, right, Or, or try to change our decisions for political reasons. And so the answer really is, 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 information, technology, and trust. So, so the way I think about it is, like today, in today's world, a parent will take their mobile phone, punch on a button, a car driven by a stranger will show up, they'll put their kid in it and let that car take their kid to soccer practice, right? So how is it that, that we'll entrust our most sacred asset, our children, into, you know, based upon that. And, and it's really because you can track them, right? The phone gives you that, that back and forth knowledge of, of what's happening and they have it so that there's an inherent trust built into what is otherwise a very, very risky proposition. And so here the same way, right? So I'm a big believer and I've, I've talked to the, the commission and others that, that the department's information systems ought to be accessible by the Congress, right? So right now, the problem with the information systems is like the, within the Army, the, the major commands put data in one system. It goes into another database in the, 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 in the Pentagon. Then when the, the Army sends it to OSD, it goes into another database. And then it goes into another database when it goes to OMB. And OMB sends it to Congress. And, and nobody can trace any of the information back. And everybody's looking at this data. It's like a giant Rubik's Cube that's been scrambled. Nobody can tell what's happening at any time. And people have different snapshots of the data at different points in time. 
and then they say, well, I, I see this, and somebody says, I see that, and then, right, you, you, if you're looking at different data, then you don't have trust. And so I think the department is going to have to make the first step, right, because the Congress has the power uh, by the Constitution. So until the department opens up its books and, and provides a single database that can track the, the what's being spent at in real time that the Congress can look at it, that the Congress is going to be reticent to just kind of give the department, you know, kind of more flexibility, especially, right, the political dynamics of, as you said it, a trillion dollars in spending, right? That seems like a lot of money to people in Congress. Like, well, so again, tell me, like, why you can't show me more, right? The fact that the news reports about the audits, now you can argue that the audits don't really impact what's going on, but they don't, that doesn't breed trust with the Congress, right? So that's the issue with the audits is, is Congress looks at that and says, hey, if you don't know what you're spending your money on, how do we? And so that's the challenge, right? You have to bridge that trust and the department's going to have to take the big step of being utterly and completely transparent uh, with the Congress through its database. Of course, the challenge is the department actually doesn't have that data visibility in and of itself, right? So it's not like the Secretary of Defense is sitting up there and he can key in a couple of keystrokes and see where his money's being spent, right? It just doesn't work that way. And so uh, so until it gets its data in order, it won't be able to have kind of a, an app, you know, where a congressional staff or a member, you know, show me the artillery rounds being bought, right? And you can kind of see the production and all that. Uh, that that's the big challenge, and that's where a little bit of time, money, and effort invested, I think, will yield a lot of results. Understood. Yes, sir. Um, with the the supplemental uh, funding, um, this kind of ties back into the into the, you know the the budget approaching you know over a trillion dollar, close to a trillion dollars. Uh, do you think the supplemental funding is is a is a good thing because it means design you know it's for emergencies but still you know it goes back to um you know f factions people that think that hey you know why isn't that a part of the budget you know why why wasn't that programmed yeah. in so your thoughts uh, if you think about it the 2024 budget right and you back it up right so the 2024 budget that was supposed to take effect on one october of this year Right, went was supposed to have gone to the Congress in February 2023. It was it went to OSD in in July of 22. The services began working on it in January in December of 21. So, you know, it's impossible two years out, right? So if I would have said two years out, okay, hey, please program money for a Hamas massacre in Israel, right? That's going to tri trigger a war. Right. Everybody's like, ooh, right. That's not possible to do. So there's always going to be these emergencies. I think there's a statistic that says like in in the last 40 years, there have been 38, you know, supplementals for DOD. Right. So I think it just comes with the fact that the enemy gets a vote. Right. And, and we can put together our budget no matter how accurate we are and something's going to happen in the world that's gonna require additional spending or a change in the allocation of spending uh, in order to deal with it because we, we don't get to tell, you know, you know, the enemy, well, sorry, you gotta wait another two years. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, I wanted your thoughts on that. You know, I was reading an op-ed where the criticism was that, you know, hey, 
why isn't this in the in the budget? Why do we have supplemental you know funding? Well, you know it kind of goes back to a you know a quote from and I'm paraphrasing um, Secretary of Defense Gates where you know we have the perfect record of, of predicting wars which are which are zero. You know, right? So um, transitioning, sir, to uh, innovation, modernization, changes in the in the character of war, um, and so. The NDS, you know, states that our pacing threat is is China. Our our acute is is Russia. Um, do you think that we are losing our competitive edge? You know, are we too slow in in terms of modernizing and, and innovating, or you know, are we are we doing it fast enough? Your thoughts, sir. So I w- I would say that maybe the question is slightly different, right? Because right, what the na- what the civilian leadership of the Department of Defense have said is they want a Department of Defense that is sized for one war and one war only, and it's going to be a quick war. So if you're asking, hey, can we fight one quick war, the answer is yes. If you're asking, do I believe that in the next five to seven years, the United States is going to be restricted to one quick war only, I think the answer is no, right? I think that we we see today right? You have a war in Europe, Taiwan, the Middle East, right? It's, you know, as some have quoted, you know, it's two to two and a half to three. And we don't have the munitions depth. We don't have the stock. We have, don't have the ability to rebuild equipment lost in multiple theaters. And if the war goes more than a short period of time, right, we don't have the depth in people or, or equipment to do it because we've downsized it, right? So, so the question is, right, does our strategy right, that as set forth by the civilian leaders of the Department of Defense match the world we live in, right, then, then I would say no. And that's, a, that's, a, that's really the, the crux of the equation about the competitive advantage, right? Could we fight China at the same time holding off Russia? Could we, what if we right, were fighting China over Taiwan and they stoked a fight in the Middle East? Could we fight there also? The answer is probably not, because the the civilian leaders in the Department of Defense have said, we are only going to spend money, and we're going to only resource for one war, and it's going to be a short war. Beyond that, then, right, they, they go, period. We're just going to win the short war and be done with it. Uh, and and mil- many people doubt that's possible. And so that's really the crux of the intellectual argument right now over competitive advantages is, right, so how do you last longer than a short period of time. Yes, sir. Do you think, uh, and this goes back into, into budget and prioritization, uh, do you think we're too focused on, on the future and not enough on the, on the here and now in terms of you know, capabilities, sir? So I do, right? So again, with the uh, current civilian leadership in the department who thinks of one war and a short war, right? They have a philosophy of divest to invest is what they call it, right? That's their words, not mine. I'm not making this up, right? So their belief is spend less today to buy things, save that money, invest it in research and development, and then buy the next generation of weapons next decade, right? If you believe that the, right, so, so essentially we're, we're taking out an ad in the major newspapers to Russia, China, Iran and say, hey, Please don't fight us today because we're not buying a lot of munitions and weapons. But we plan to be really strong in 2035. So if you wait till then, then we can beat you. 
Well, essentially, it's an invitation to move now, right? You essentially tilted your hands, right? And so if you look at the Ukraine, right, we're, right, we depleted our munition stores in a, in a, in a very small, as bad as the Ukrainian war is, it's, it's localized, right? And, and we, we still ran through our munition stocks. Uh, and so imagine if, 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 if China moved on Taiwan at the same time, well, then what? what right? How are you going to deal with that now? And so I've been a big proponent, which is like, buy now, right? Uh, there's also a fallacy in divest to invest that if I don't buy munitions or tanks or planes today, that I'll be able to buy them five or 10 years from now. Well, production lines don't work that way. Right, workers move on, and then you have no, and you don't have factories, and you can't build them. And so when we say, "Oh, well, I'd love to spend money today, but you know the industrial base isn't isn't ready," well, the industrial base isn't ready because you're not spending money today, and it won't be ready in the future. So the answer is to spend less money on future acquisition and more money on acquisition today. We've got to buy more bombs, more bullets, more tanks, more planes. That will get the production line up. And then, just like your iPhone, like every year or two, your iPhone gets better, right? You buy a new model. Nobody says, hey, you know, wait 10 years, buy your next iPhone in 2035, right? And so every two or three years, the equipment, the munitions we have, we need to speed up the cycle of innovation and bring in a lot of that smart technology today. Uh, if you look at the Department of Defense, like it completely missed the small satellite revolution that occurred like in over a period of five years, right, with Starlink. And I remember the discussions in the 2015, 2016 time period in the Pentagon, which were big satellites, right, small satellite, right. We, we can't afford to buy the small satellites because we need to be investing in these really big, expensive, multi-billion dollar satellites. Well, the commercial market came and just sent up these small satellites and the Department of Defense completely missed it because it was it was not buying into the marketplace. The the problem with that is because the Department of Defense was not buying into the marketplace, it now has no influence over that marketplace. So if it was buying early those small satellites, it could have said, "Yes, I want to buy, but here here if you're going to take my money early, Right here are some of the things I want. I want some digital redundancy. I want right of first use. I want to be able to task them. And at that point, right when when those companies need money, they they'll agree to a lot of those conditions to taking your money. Now, when you know they're all up there, right, right, the the people who own the satellites can turn them on and off, and there's nothing we can do about it because we didn't buy in early. So the department is very slow and also, I think, uh, you know, reckless in its focus on 2035 uh, when the world is very dangerous and, you know, coming up here in 2025. Yes, sir. Um, and, you know, kind of tying into the to the satellites and the, you know, lessons identified, maybe not lessons learned. You know, I think, uh, you know, we, we identified the issues of our defense industrial base and, and precision stocks and, and ammunition, you know, um, in, in Ukraine. But that was pointed out back in, you know, 2016, 2017 on our um, our fight against ISIS, you know, our our, mm -hmm. our siege on, on Mazul where we identified, you know, I think the Air Force was, you know, running low on, on PGMs. So, yes, sir. Yeah, so then the question really is, is like, well, Who's learning the lessons? And if you're the Congress and the department keeps asking for the wrong things, why would you give it more money? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, in terms of Army current force structure, um, is there any concerns with with our force structure? Do you, do you think the Army is too small or, or, or too big for the for the strategy? Yeah, so I think the Army's got a couple of problems right now. Uh, they're related uh, and, uh, and not related. So the first is, as you said, to the strategy. So if you believe that the strategy is China only, one war with China in a small war, well, then it's hard to argue that the Army is not big enough to do that. It may not have the right capabilities. Right, but if you believe that it's not just China, that it's Europe, it's the Middle East, it's uh, proxy wars in Africa, right? Then the army is not big enough to be able to, you know, also participate in the Pacific at the rate that it needs to. Plus, you know, hold down the fort and the front lines in the Middle East and in and in Europe, right? If you think about the Middle East today, right? You know, army troops are under attack every single day, right? So we 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 think that there, right? That there's nothing going on, but but you know, they're being attacked, literally. Uh, and, and in Europe, they're just, you know, we're one accident away from, you know, being involved in a war, war there. So, so the army is probably too small if you believe that wars last longer than a few weeks or that wars occur in more than one theater at a time. The real problem the army's got now, that's almost an academic discussion, though, because the Army has really failed in its primary force management duty, which is to, to raise an army. And the recruiting crisis is really bad, right? So the Army should have about 485,000 people in it, you know, 482 to 485, and it's down to 460, 455, depending upon when you count and, and how you do the counting. So by definition, right, the army really hasn't cut any force structure yet. And so if you're down almost 10% in people, then that means your force structure is hollow. And so the army has right now, for the number of people it has, too much structure. So it's too big in structure for the number of people it has. And that's what leads to disasters, right? And so if you go back over the past, rewind the tape a hundred years, right? You go back to the start of World War II with Kayserine Pass, right? When we burnt soldiers in, in gasoline tanks because they were really unprepared for that type of warfare with wrong equipment. And then you go to Task Force Smith in Korea, right? Where, where they were overrun. Then you go to Desert One in 1979, right, where we, we met the enemy and we killed people in the military without actually making contact with the enemy, right? We're setting ourselves up for something like that because we're holding on to too much structure without soldiers. And if something were to go off today, the units are not manned to fight. Right, right now we're pulling soldiers from one unit to deploy in another unit. That breaks down small unit leadership. You're putting pillars in there at the last second. You're, you're, you're then making your follow-on forces less ready because they're down at about 80% or 70% and you don't have the right training, right? You don't have the trust in the small unit leadership. And then the soldiers wind up on a, on a, on a conveyor belt or one of those, you know, hamster wheels where they're just going from deployment to deployment. And, and, and consequently, then tempo is higher now than it was during, you know, during the height of OEF in some units. And then people leave and then you have fewer people. Right. And so so the Army's got itself in a very, very tough position. 
And it probably in the short run needs to get smaller before it gets bigger. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Um, sir, I just want to transition to the, uh, to my, to my fun questions. And these are the questions that I, I like to ask, you know, all, all my guests, you know, as we start to start to close out here, sir. Um, and so first question is what, what is your all time favorite book, sir? So I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you two books, right? So one is, uh, a book by Robert Caro uh, on the power broker, Robert Moses, who, who built the highway system in New York over a period of 50 years. And for anyone who works in a bureaucracy, which the Department of Defense is, right, how he accumulated and wielded power, right, is an unbelievable, it's an unbelievable case study. The challenge, of course, with anything Robert Carroll writes is, right, he can't write anything in less than like 800 pages. So you've got to really have time to read it to 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 do it but it's a fascinating uh, case study in in power in the public sphere uh the the second book uh so i'll take a little liberty here and give you two is uh is is from alistair horn right a savage war and peace and it's he's a brit and he went in and studied the algier french war uh in the in the 1950s so he was kind of an impartial person and if you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East uh, and, or what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan, you've really got to read that book because it really talks about insurgencies and democracies that are trying to fight them and those type of proxy wars. And uh, I didn't read it until after my uh, time, right? I did Desert Storm, which wasn't really an insurgency, but then I did Iraqi Freedom in 04. Uh, and I read it after that, and then a lot of things crystallized in my mind about what was going on in Iraq. And if you think about what's going on in the Middle East or even what's going on in, in Ukraine these days, that book provides a fascinating insight from both sides of the, of the fight in near contemporaneous time. You really get kind of the thinking from both, both the insurgents and the French on what happened there. And so for, for military professionals who are trying to build and organize forces, understanding that becomes very important. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Moving on, second question. What emerging or future capability technology worries you the most? So what worries me is the Army's inability to uh, really take advantage of the coming AI revolution. Uh, and so AI in and of itself doesn't worry me, right? Uh, because I understand that I, I, you know, back when I was at West Point in the mid-1980s, I was taking AI courses. And so this technology has been around for a while. But AI is not some magic potion that you just kind of sprinkle a little bit on it. AI is about data. And if you don't collect data and you don't understand the value of data, then AI can't work, right? Because that's what it feeds on. It feeds on massive amounts of data, just like you and I breathe air. AI breathes and, and needs data to live. And so today, right, the Army's trying to build autonomous ground combat vehicles. Well, okay, well, what data is it collecting off of its current ground combat vehicles? And the answer is almost nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So tanks are driving around and no data is being collected, right? Tank rounds are being fired from gunners and nobody's collecting data on how they shoot and where they shoot and what they aim at and how they do. So, so I don't understand from how the Army thinks that it's going to put AI systems into uh, driver 
uh, into the driver's compartment or into the gunner's compartment of weapon systems uh, without that. And if you think of just mapping, right, this isn't driving around San Francisco on a road that's well mapped, right? So on the battlefield, if you look at Ukraine, artillery reshapes the terrain and so do obstacles, right? So the terrain is constantly being reshaped. Well, how do you collect and analyze that data in real time? So if you're a tank platoon leader and you've got autonomous capability that you're taking in that data and doing a data refresh, right? Just as you would boresight your weapons before you go into combat, right? You would load that data in. We, the Army's not doing any of that. Right. So so I don't understand, like, how the Army thinks it's going to do a lot of what it's planning to do without taking those steps forward. And so that's really what worries me. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, the final final question, sir. I'm just wondering if you had any any advice, any words of wisdom for our uh, for our force management community, sir. Yeah, so, so I think that uh, for, for everybody involved in force management, and it's from the FA-50s to, to all the other functional areas that are involved, are doing an incredibly important mission. And it's, it's an unglorious mission, right? Nobody holds parades for force managers, right? Uh, but my advice is to stick with it because it is so absolutely important to everything, right? everything the Army does to all those 18-year-old kids, right? So if you think about it, a division commander fighting a division, right, at that point in time, right, can only fight the division and, and employ the soldiers, those young men and women, with the weapon systems and the training that they have at that time. The force managers, it's the force managers in the background that work tirelessly in, you know, in cubicles late into the night, to make sure that they have the best train, that they are well-trained and have the equipment and the supplies and the fuel they need, right? There's no division commander that can conjure up better weapons on the battlefield, not possible. And so division commanders succeed or don't succeed because of what those majors and lieutenant colonels, those GS-12s, 13s, 14s, grind it out every single day doing. And and what I told, you know, when I was, I was an FA-49 Orson, what I would tell, I'd go down and talk to the majors and I'd tell them, hey, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bear news, bad news, but like your, your, your days of having like fun and kicking down doors and doing all those fun things and going out shooting, they're over, right? The second half of your career is about paying back for all the fun that you had. And it's so absolutely critical because without it, we will repeat the the disasters at Kayserine Pass, the Task Force Smith, and Desert One. And it's the force managers uh, that carry that on their back. Uh, and so it's it's so very important uh, for everybody to work in and be serious about it. All right, sir. Well, this is this about uh, concludes uh, th this episode. You know, I really appreciate your, your time. It really means a lot. Um, learned a lot on in the PPBE and in the budget. Um, I'll transition back to you, sir, for any any closing comments. Yeah, well, thank you for what you do again. And, uh, you know, to all the force managers out there and, and even those who are in the, you know, not in the functional areas, uh, spending time in the Pentagon is an important uh, tour of duty because that's where the decisions really are, are made. And so my advice to everybody is get to the Pentagon quickly uh, because you need repetitive tours, uh, just like we wouldn't have a brigade commander who wasn't a platoon leader, right? A company commander, a battalion commander. All right, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes on more of the PPBE and the budget process, interviews with senior force managers, and a historical visit of the 1973 Yom Kippur War.